You're listening to the North Canton Chapel Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. All right. I need your help. You ready? Do this with me. Here we go. Just keep it. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amends. Worked hard all my lifetime. No help from my friends. Lord, won't you buy me? There you go. That's about it. So, uh, yeah, that was not worthy of applause at all. So that was good that you didn't do that. Um, that's Janis Joplin. If you don't know who Janis Joplin is, that's her theology of prayer. Um, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? I remember the first time I heard that, I kind of went, what? That's really weird. What is prayer? What is prayer? Is prayer asking God for stuff? Or is prayer like Frank Costanza? Is it like the airing of grievances? What's, what is prayer? Is prayer something we do at mealtime, at bedtime? Is it something we do at church? Does a pastor pray and no one else? Does prayer have to rhyme? What is prayer? So this is our second week in um, this six-week series just called Ancient Rhythms, these basic kind of spiritual practices that I think are just kind of essential to the Christian life. Today we're talking about prayer, and uh, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 1. And so if you got your Bibles, your phone, your iPad, your incredible memory, whatever it is, head to Nehemiah chapter 1. Um, I was thinking about how to kind of get into this morning a little bit with prayer, and um, I don't think it's very honest to um, expect you to come into this morning asking, how can I become a more prayerful person? Because um, at the risk of sounding a little cynical, I don't think many of you are asking that. Maybe some, but, but not many. Um, how can I become a more prayerful person? Maybe, maybe you're asking that, but I think maybe a, a more honest question is, where do I go when I need help from something that's bigger than me? Where do I turn when I, ask, I need to ask for help? And then where do I go when I need to direct my thank yous? I think that's actually practically the theology of prayer. Of course I know you wanna be a more prayerful person, but deeper than that, where do you go when you need help and, and who do you say thank you to? When you look at your world and you live in your world, what do you do with the joys and the pains of the world? And so that's where we're going this morning. We're gonna take like 15, 20 minutes or so and look at the life of a man who asked those questions. Where do I go when I need help and where do I go when I need to point my joy somewhere? I want you to see how prayer works in Nehemiah's life. And then, um, just like last week, we're going to kind of wrap the thing up by giving you some practical, maybe next steps. If you do want to become a more prayerful person, or if you want to grow this discipline in your life, um, I want to get you there. So I want to introduce you to a man named Nehemiah. He lived about 500 years before Jesus. He's Jewish, but he's living in Persia as a prisoner of war. He's a slave in the house of a Persian king, and his life is actually kind of peaceful. Uh, he's a cupbearer, which is not a great job, but it's kind of a safe job. And 
And then he gets news one day that totally breaks his heart. Nehemiah chapter one, verse one. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it happened in the month of Chislev, the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel. There's a lot of things in there. We have no idea what they mean. We'll come back to it. Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. <laughs> so a couple things right out of the gate. Nehemiah's got this thing and then it, it comes right into verse four where he just says, oh my gosh, as soon as I heard this, I sat down, I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the Lord God of heaven. So first things first, you look back at verse one, we see like, whatever is going to follow here comes from Nehemiah's pen. It says the words of Nehemiah. It's right there in verse one. So what we're going to see, like, this is basically his story, his prayer journal. We're going to get up close to see what Nehemiah is actually writing. Um, and I think, I don't want to go too deep into this yet, but enough to say, even at this point, prayer is always personal. I think that's why it is so hard, is people can pray for you, they can pray about you, they can pray over you, but you still gotta come to God on your own. <laughs> Second thing we just see right up front, this whole thing starts with a conversation. Did you catch that? I think there's actually something really beautiful about this. Nehemiah's at his job, minding his own business. He's bagging groceries at Giant Eagle, and then he gets a text from one of his friends, and they say, the city that you love, the city of our people is burned, and it breaks his heart. I think there's something actually really beautiful about that this just starts as a conversation between friends. Here's why I think that's worth bringing up. I, I'm struck by how common the setting of this story is gonna be. I think a lot of us, we look at prayer like it's the optional add-on to the discipleship and insurance policy that like nobody really does. Like it's reserved like for like very holy people like monks on mountaintops or saints in stained glass cathedrals. But what we get here is a very common man living a common life and he just gets pushed into this prayerful space. Last thing, and then we'll get into it a little further. Um, Nehemiah hears this news about Jerusalem, the city that he loves, and he has an emotional response. You saw it in verse four, describes it. It says that he wept and he mourned for days. He continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. How many of you know that a lot of times like great prayers come from great pain? I wish it weren't that way. This is not Mercedes-Benz theology here. <laughs> this is something deeper. This is something much more raw. And I don't mean to sound like Johnny Raincloud or anything, but like prayer requires emotional honesty. If I'm not willing to open my eyes to the pain of my world and the joys of my world, my, my prayer life is gonna feel really stale and formulaic and cold and boring. For prayer to be real, my eyes have to be open. I think that's what we're seeing right up at the gate. So, with Nehemiah's eyes open and his heart fully beating, what does Nehemiah's prayer look like? 
four parts. We're going to read them all, and then we're going to pull it apart a little bit and take a look at it. Take a look in verse five. Here's how Nehemiah prays. And I said, and then the rest of it's his prayer. Here he goes. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you night and day for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you. We've not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man, meaning the king. He's gonna go talk to him. Now I was cupbearer to the king. That's his prayer. Four movements, we're gonna take a look at all four of them and then we're gonna move into some practicality. Movement number one starts with recognition. By the way, you note taker types, all four of these start with the letter R. And I didn't even have to force it. Like as a preaching pastor, I always get suspicious when like, a, when like the pastor goes like, and they all start with the letter. Well, one of them can't be right. You just had to shoehorn something in there. No, they actually all start with the letter R. I'm not making it up. First one is recognition. He recognizes who God is. Look back in verse five. Here's what he says. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love. See how he addresses God? Great and awesome God who keeps his covenant, his steadfast love. This is the God that we pray to. Here's why recognition is important in prayer. Prayer does not start with me reminding God what I need, but me recognizing who God is. We get it inverted. We often start with what I need. Nehemiah doesn't start there. He starts with recognizing who God is. Nehemiah is so God conscious that the pain that he feels, which is legitimate and deep, he just throws it up against the God of the Bible. And he goes, you deal with it. Nehemiah is burdened for the city that he loves, and he's kind of wondering, like, God, are you, are, does this bother you? Do you wonder if God cares about the things that you care about? Do you wonder if God's forgotten about you sometimes when you go to him in prayer? Do you wonder if, like, when he looks at your life, if he just kind of, like, looks at you and then looks somewhere else? I think we're, we're prone to that kind of thinking. And so Nehemiah addresses God, and it's so practical. Like, he goes... God, you're great and you're awesome. Why does he start there? Because like us, Nehemiah's going, I'm worried you can't handle this. I'm worried the situation I'm seeing is too big for you. And so he gospels his heart and he goes, no, 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 you're great and you're awesome. And then he says, you keep your promises, you keep your, your, your covenant. Why does he say that? He goes, I'm, I'm worried that you're gonna break up with your people. 
I'm worried we're too far gone. So he reminds himself, no, 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 you keep your covenants. And then he says, you keep your love for your people. Why does he say that? The same reason that you and I wrestle with it is because I'm worried you don't care about me. Eight billion people you're watching out for. Me? Hmm. Here's the key to recognition. When we start our prayers with recognition, God doesn't need my recognition. He's not that insecure. He's not up there in heaven going, oh, Brandon, I'm so glad you reminded me that I'm great and awesome and keep my covenant. I had forgotten that, right? He doesn't need that. I don't recognize God in prayer because he needs it. I recognize God in prayer because I need it. (laughs) This is where Nehemiah starts. This profound sense of recognizing God for who he is. So that's movement number one, recognition. Second movement is repentance. Take a look in verse six. He says, let your ear be attentive and your hearts open, or your heart open to hear the prayer of your servant that now I pray before you day and night for your people, your servants. And then watch how, he's, how he gets deeper. He goes, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you. We've not kept your commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. What is repentance? Quick definition. Repentance is seeing my sin as wrong and then turning from it toward Christ. Seeing my sin as wrong and then turning from it toward Christ. And not turning like this. Not like, you know, just turning my head. Like, turning with my feet, a change of direction. Repentance only happens when we shift from blaming to owning. When we look at what's, what's wrong with the world, with our eyes open, and we say, this is not a they-them problem, this is a me problem. <laughs> Do you hear that in Nehemiah's words here? He doesn't externalize it. What hits me most when I follow what Nehemiah is thinking here is he repents when he could have pointed the finger. Right? Like he could have looked around and he gone, well, it's this pagan king in this land in which I live. I cannot be expected to follow God in such a pagan environment. He's not British. I don't know where that came from. I'll let you figure that out later. Well, he could have just gone like, oh, it's the king's fault. He could have pointed the finger at the priests and gone like, well, uh, it's the priests' fault. They're the ones that like, got us off track, God. It's all them. He could have gone straight to the top. He could have gone straight to God. And God, it's your fault we're here. He blows right past all of that, and he just says, me, us, we're the problem. Sometimes you're so desperate for God to work that you don't really care who's right and wrong anymore. I am absolutely convinced Revival happens when we work harder to repent from our sin than hide our sin. Revival happens when we work harder to repent from our sin than hide our sin. Here's the principle. Repentance readies God's people for revival. Do you want revival? I do. Repent. Repent. Turn. Stop saying they, them, and start saying me. (laughs) This is Isaiah 6. Isaiah, you know this. He has this wonderful, huge vision of God and his holiness. And then what happens? He, He goes, woe is me, 
from a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Why? Because repentance readies us for revival. This is John in in Revelation. When John sees the risen Christ, he falls at his feet as though dead. Why? Because repentance readies us for revival. Funny thing, repentance is not where we experience God's wrath. Repentance is where we learn how good God is. This is the prodigal, prodigal son all over again, right? Face in the pigsty, dude goes, you know what? I think I want to go back to my father. And as he's walking home, the father's standing at the front door like this. Well, it's about time. No, he runs down to get his son. Why? Because he loves him and he wants him back. That's repentance. So recognition, repentance, third movement, remembrance. He remembers what God has done. Take a look in verse eight. He says, remember, see, I told you they come right from the text. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you, but if you return, I'll bring you in. They're your servants, verse 10. Your people, you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Remembrance. What's he doing? He's looking in the rearview mirror and he's remembering God's past faithfulness. Why is that so important for us? God's past faithfulness kills my future fears. God's past faithfulness kills my future fears. Here's the problem with us. We got a lot of them. Well, where's the big one? You and I are chronically, theologically forgetful. (laughs) Here's what that means. When I am faced with something that is bigger than me, when I have a problem that I can't fix, when I can't see the edges of the thing that is staring me down, When life hands us what it inevitably and invariably does, my first instinct is to obsess about how impossible my future will be rather than look in the past and see how good God has been. Anybody else with me in that one? We are chronically, theologically forgetful. And in that way, I'm gonna push this a little further, in that way we kind of become practical atheists for a second. But here we get Nehemiah going, okay, like he's looking out and he's going, this is big. This is heartbreaking. I don't know how I'm gonna get around this, God. I don't know what you're gonna do. But then there's like this conscious shift in the text where he goes, God, you've been so good. You redeemed your people. That's almost a little jarring for us, isn't it? It's like, oh gosh, how are we gonna rebuild Jerusalem? How are we gonna get over this big thing? Like, oh, we got people saying this is never gonna happen. God, how are you gonna get us through this? God, you've been so good. Remembering in prayer is not this like quaint encouragement discipline. It's not just that. To remember in prayer is to remember where the source of our strength came from in the first place. <laughs> um, one of the things we've been doing this year uh, with our, our elders here, um, we, we used to meet once a month on Thursday nights and it used to be about three hours because <laughs> there's a lot of conversation, a lot of prayer, a lot of good things. Um, but one of the things that we were doing different this year is uh, we're actually gonna meet twice a month. We have one meeting where we're gonna do business and then there's another meeting on Saturday morning, second Saturday of the month, it was yesterday, where we gather and we just pray. 
We don't talk about budgets, we don't talk about staff, we don't talk about strategy, we don't talk about planning, we just pray and we seek the Lord. And it was, we met yesterday, right before men's breakfast, and um, I, I sweetened the pot, I got Dunkin' Donuts. Because <clears throat> if you want people to pray at 6.30 in the morning, you better be bringing donuts. So I got donuts and like a big box of Joe thing from, from Dunkin' down there, right? And um, it was so cool because, you know, there's like, I don't know, what, 11 of us sitting down here in this one classroom, and we did Nehemiah's prayer yesterday. And we get to this remembering spot, and I can look in the rearview mirror, and, you know, I got maybe, I don't know, 100 yards of road back there. But, you know, I'm sitting here with some of these guys that have been a part of North Can Chapel for decades, and they've got, like, miles of road back there. And as we started to praise God for his faithfulness, and not just to, like, our church, but, like, just his faithfulness, that he's just good. Like, some of these guys were reaching, like, decades back and, like, praying for God to do these great things. That's why God commands his people all throughout the Old Testament. He goes, remember, I brought you out of Egypt. Remember? Here, take this pile of rocks and build an altar. That way, when you come back to it, you look at it and you go, here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I've come. This is why God always says, remember. Because God's past faithfulness kills my future fears. He knows that. All right, last movement. You got recognition, repentance, remembrance, and then here comes his request. Is it in verse 11? He says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. So hear me, the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Give me success to your servant today, and grant me mercy in the sight of this man. Then comes the request. After like seven verses of other stuff, how often we get this wrong. How often we pray like this? God, here's this thing that's bugging me. Here's this thing that's burdening me. Here's this thing that I see. Here's what I want to do about it. Here's my bright idea. Can you bless my bright idea, God? <laughs> Nehemiah doesn't do that at all. <laughs> Before we move any further, um, let me stop and ask you a question. Do you believe that God wants to hear from you? I mean, that's a really... That's not a theoretical question. I think it's probably the only question that really matters. Do you believe that the God of the universe wants to hear from you? When he thinks about you, is he eager to hear from you? When he thinks about you, what look is on his face? Hmm. Jesus talked about this. I just want to read this to you really quick because this is a good thing for us to remember. Jesus was teaching once, a crowd full of people. Some of them are parents. They got kids. And he says this. He says, which one of you... If your son asks for bread, we'll give him a stone. You wouldn't do that. <laughs> or which one of you, if, if your son asks for a fish, you'd give him a serpent? You wouldn't do that, would you? And your parents. And then he goes, if you then, being evil, hang on, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? What's he doing here? Jesus is relaying the heart of your heavenly father. And he starts with you who are parents. And he goes, if your daughter comes up to you and says, daddy, I'm hungry. Can you give me a piece of bread? You're not going to give her a stone and say, here, deal with it. You wouldn't do that. If your son comes up to you and tugs your shirt and says, dad, I'm hungry. You wouldn't give him a snake and say, here, choke on it. That's cruel. You wouldn't do that. And so Jesus does this masterful turn of logic where then he says, if you being evil, which means you think you're a good parent, by God's standard, you're nowhere near a good parent. You're still selfish. <laughs> Sorry. 
And then he says, if you being evil know how to care for your kids, how much more will God care for you? Don't you know how much he wants to hear from you? Don't you know how much he just wants to sit and talk with you? Gosh, he loves you so much. So you put all that together. God loves you. Talk to him. Now, we're going to get to the eight, these like tips in just a second. But before we do, what's with this little phrase at the end of verse 11? Take a look at it again. He goes through this wonderful prayer. He's this four-movement prayer. And then he goes, now I was cupbearer to the king. Did you catch that? Why the little tack on the end? Doesn't make any sense. Why did he include that little detail for us? Here's what I think is going on. Nehemiah wants us to know that whatever God is about to do is not because of his position, but in spite of his position. Do you ever tell yourself, I'm just a cupbearer? Do you ever tell yourself, you're too young, you're too rough, you're too slow, you're not strong enough, you're not experienced enough, you're not smart enough. Do you ever tie God's ability to your ability? You ever say those kind of things? I do, just being honest. I go, gosh. Here's the point. With God, a cupbearer on his knees is more powerful than a king on his throne. (laughs) You don't have to have titles. You don't have to have degrees. You don't have to have abilities. You don't need power. You don't need influence. You don't need charisma. Years later, when Jesus holds a child and he says, the kingdom is like this, what he means is, you don't have to come with your ideas, your influence, your polish, your leadership IQ. All God is asking for is your trust. With God, a cupbearer on his knees is more powerful than a king on his throne. I have a friend here at North Canton Chapel. She's retired. She's in her 80s. All her kids are grown. Her husband's gone to be with the Lord. And most days, she sits at her round kitchen table with a giant yellow legal pad, and there's a list on it. And she prays. Some of you are on that list, by the way. (laughs) She prays for her family. She prays for our missions partners. She prays for our community. She has never written a book. She has never preached a sermon. She will never make a million dollars. But you know that there is more power in the faded ink and curled pages of that legal pad than there is in any conference room or planning session in the entire world. That kitchen table is where movements start. Just a cupbearer. Okay, I got nine minutes. Here we go. Let me give you eight tips, see how I do on time. (laughs) How do you become a more prayerful person? Where do you go with your thank yous and where do you go for your help? First and foremost, see that you belong to Christ. Make sure that you belong to Jesus. Now that's a strange tip, what do I mean? Here's what I mean. One question I get a lot as a pastor is, well, aren't we all kind of God's children? Yes and no. We're all God's children in the sense that we are all created by God. But John 1.12 says this. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What that means is that without Christ, I'm like a child outside the door. But the moment I put my faith in Christ alone for my salvation, I am adopted, welcomed in, and brought into the family of God. This is the gospel. (laughs) Now here's what that has to do with prayer. Until I belong to Christ, until I put my faith in him, 
my prayers do not come from a place that seeks to glorify God. They seek to glorify Brannon. <laughs> and they may be noble. Some of them may be really noble prayers. But if I don't belong to Christ, if my heart is not shaped by his authority, if my desires aren't being formed by his desires, God won't answer my prayers because if he did, those things would turn me into a greater sinner. God will not give me anything that moves me away from him. So practically, if you are not a Christian, your prayer life starts at the foot of the cross and your first prayer is, God be merciful to me, a sinner, and his answer is always and forever, yes. This is the goodness of the gospel. And so first and foremost, see that you belong to Jesus. Let me zoom in a little bit closer. I wanna talk to those who identify as Christians, which is probably many of you here, I hope. There's this great, really ominous verse in the book of Psalms, which we'll get to. But the second point that you need to hear is to take your sin seriously. And I'm talking to Christians now. Take your sin seriously. Psalm 66, 18 says this. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Do you hear what that's saying? Maybe your translation might say, if I regard sin or if I hold sin in my heart. That's a great Hebrew word and it means to fix my attention on, to focus on, or to secretly love. What he's saying is, if I secretly love the things that God hates and I nurture a love for those things in my heart, God's not gonna hear me. Those are strong words and they impact your prayer life, don't they? Do you see why repentance and confession matter? If I love what God hates, my prayers won't be heard. So what do we do about that? Same thing Nehemiah did, repent, <laughs> repent. I said a few minutes ago that revival happens when we work harder to repent from our sin than to hide our sin. This verse tells me why. Take sin seriously, Christian. Third tip, here you go. Pray scripture, pray scripture. How did Nehemiah know what to pray for? Did you ever ask that? How do you know what to pray for? Because he knew God's word. <laughs> yeah, he had the thing that was on his heart, but he knew scripture. Someone once asked Charles Spurgeon, which is more important, reading the Bible or praying? And in this great one-liner, he goes, which is more important, breathing in or breathing out? <laughs> love that. And it's why this week follows last week. When I go to God's word, I learn what he expects and I learn who he is and I learn how I am called to live and then that shapes my prayer life. So pray scripture. Number four, pray privately a lot. Pray privately a lot. I wanna just give you this one from Matthew chapter six. Matthew chapter six. This is Jesus. He talks about people who like to pray in public. He says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners that they may be seen by others. And he goes, truly, I tell you, they've, seen, they've received their reward. But when you pray, and I was addressing those who want to be his followers, he says, when you pray, here's what I want you to do. 
Go in your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who is in secret. And then your father who sees what is in secret will reward you. What is Jesus getting at? In your spiritual life, performance paralyzes. Performance paralyzes. There are lessons that we need to learn in the prayer closet that we can't learn on the stage. Jesus knows something that we don't, and he knows that when it comes to spirituality, guys, we have an incredible capacity for inauthenticity. We know how to fake it. And Jesus goes, that's not good for you. Get that over with. Stop faking it. Go to your closet. Pray there. Start there. The great Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McShane, said, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. Bluntly, who you are alone in prayer is who you really are. Gosh. So pray privately a lot. Number five, pray in the common. Pray in the common. Here's what I mean. In the, um, in the 1600s, there was this monk. His name was Brother Lawrence. And he was the dishwasher in the monastery. Not a very glamorous job. He was the guy who washed dishes and he made the food. Here's how he describes his prayer life. I just want to read it to you. And so it is in the kitchen, a place to which I have a natural aversion. I get it. (laughs) He says, I have accustomed myself to doing everything there for the love of God. I turn the cake that is frying on the pan for the love of God. In the noise and the clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great a tranquility as if I were upon my knees at the blessed sacrament. His point, your circumstances are not the obstacle for your prayer life, they are the forum for your prayer life. Your circumstances are not the obstacle for your prayer life. They are the forum for your prayer life. Making pancakes, shoveling snow, doing the laundry, filling the car up with gas, paying your bills, going to the doctor's office, taking the kids to school. Most of us don't need two-month prayer retreats where we disappear on a mountaintop. Your mountaintop is your minivan. Your log cabin is your living room. Your distant retreat is the kitchen table. So let's pray in the common, okay? Number six, Three more, real quick. Pray in the moment. Here's what I mean by this one. Sometimes I catch myself saying words that sound very noble and they sound very well-meaning, but they are oftentimes um, like they border on irresponsibility. Sounds like this. I'll pray for you. You ever say those words? Here's what that sometimes means. I'm just confessing this as your pastor. I'm really busy right now and I got places to go and I got things to think about, but if I remember to pray for you later, I probably will. Sometimes I'll pray for you is, I'm too busy to pray for you right now, but I'll remember to do it later. So what God is doing in my life and what I want to encourage you to do is switch those four words and actually ask a question. Instead of saying, I'll pray for you, say, can we pray right now? And then do it. If I'm too busy to be interrupted by prayer, I'm too busy. And it's the same thing with you. Proverbs 3 says this, and this is, ah, this is so good. Proverbs 3 says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I'll give it when you have it with you. Here's how that applies to prayer. Christians are not the kind of people who kick goodness down the road. We do it now. If you're too busy to pray, you're too busy. Number seven, 
Pray missionally. Here's what I mean by this one. Prayer is not only sometimes a good act of kindness, prayer for other people, it's also sometimes a great apologetic. Mandy and I lived in Colorado for the first six years of our ministry and our marriage, and um, I delivered honey. I worked for a honey farmer, and um, it was a sweet job. Still awake, good. Just wanna make sure you're with me. And so um, I had a route where I would deliver honey to grocery stores like Whole Foods and Wild Oats and like these natural grocery stores in Colorado which are everywhere. And I got to know the guys and the girls that would be at the back dock of all these grocery stores. They're receivers and so they, they scan in the product that you're bringing in the back door at like five and six in the morning. And I, got, I had like 40 different stores that I would deliver to. And so when I was in seminary and we were church planting and so I started to think how can I use this for the glory of God and what can I, God how could you use this thing for me? And um, I started asking these people, I said, hey, how can, how can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? Six in the morning, back dock of a grocery store. How can I pray for you? You know what I discovered? Um, true story. In like six years of doing that, I never had anybody say no. Not once. Here's what you have to do, though. If you're going to pray missionally, you got to get over being concerned if people think you're weird. Spoiler alert, you're weird anyway. (laughs) So just be weird for Jesus and it's okay. All right, last one. Keep knocking. I know some of you have been praying about stuff for years. Same thing. You've been praying about that same relationship. You've been praying about that same person. Been praying for it for years. You've heard Jesus say, ask, seek, knock. D.L. Moody tells a story um, he's a preacher in Chicago in the 1800s. He tells this story um, where this little boy comes up to him and he says, hey, I, I hear that Jesus says, ask, seek, and knock, but it seems to me, Mr. Moody, that many people ask and they knock, but they're not admitted in. And so D.L. Moody tells this great story where he says, um, he says, have you ever been in your front room in your house and you hear someone knock on the door and then you go to the front door and you hear nothing but the pitter-patter of little feet as it's running away? He goes, it's the same thing with us. Jesus cannot be expected to answer runaway knocks. He has never promised it. I mean to keep knocking, knocking, knocking until he cannot help but open the door. Too often we knock at mercy's door and then run away instead of waiting for entrance and an answer. Jesus cannot be expected to answer runaway knocks. So... Here's what I want to encourage us to do. Band, you guys can come on back out. I'm going to end this week just like we ended last week. I do not want you to feel guilty about the lack of prayerlessness in your own life. I think anytime we see something, we go, okay, this is something I want to, I want to build into my life. What I want you to feel instead, and what I hope you feel even in this moment, is the warm invitation from your heavenly father just going, come on, <laughs> just come, come and meet with me. <laughs> Come, let's, let's sit together. I know you're afraid. I know you've got burdens. I know you see cities burning. I know you see things in your heart that are bigger than you are. Can you just come and just bring it to me? This is the heart of your father. Gosh, he loves you so much. Father, it's good to come to you. It's good to know that you were already expecting us before we opened our mouths. You have prepared a place. You have readied the table. You just ask that we come. 
So we praise you, we love you. We thank you that because of the cross that we can come boldly without fear. You've given us your son. So help us, Lord, yes, to become more prayerful people, to get our eyes off of the things that just we want and to commune with the Father that we love. We love you, in Jesus' name, amen. If you would, let's stand. Let's sing to him together. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.